Now let's turn again in our Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles, and we're going to read in Acts chapter 17, uh, beginning to read, I think, at verse 22, Acts chapter 17 from verse 22. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1113, 1113. Uh, This is a a stage in the narrative of the Acts of the Apostles in which the Apostle Paul is being chased from city to city, Uh, and uh, his uh, friends have managed to get him to the great ancient city of Athens, and uh, he's uh, he's on his own there. He's he's wandering around uh, town, and we're told in verse 16 that Uh, he has a deep experience of horror at what he sees. He saw that the city was full of idols. An interesting perspective uh, when you go to uh, ancient places and ask the question of people, what do you see? And people see very different things. Some people see marvelous art, others see expressions of idolatry. And so he begins to preach, first of all, in the synagogue, then he's wandering around in the marketplace in Athens, he's preaching, uh, we are told here in verse 18, on Jesus and the resurrection, the heart of the Christian gospel. He's brought before the council of the Areopagus, he's given the opportunity to uh, defend his teaching because uh, Greek philosophy had gone into decline at this stage, and when, uh, when a worldview goes into decline, people are up for anything that's new. So they would rather believe anything that's new than anything that's old. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for, and he quotes two poets, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Clearly, this would be understood as a reference to Jesus and the resurrection, which was why they had called him here to explain himself. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So, Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Recent Sunday mornings, our minister David Robertson has been preaching through the opening chapters of the letter of Paul to the Romans, a letter he wrote, as it were, several chapters on and probably four years or so after this particular event. And I thought it would be helpful for us to turn to this passage in Acts chapter 17 because there's a very close relationship between what we've been learning from Romans chapters 1 and 2 and what Paul says here when he preaches or speaks before the members of the Athenian Senate. Uh, you might relate them together in this way, that although Romans was written later than this event, Romans is like the book. And Paul's sermon here in Acts chapter 17 is like the movie. Romans 1.18 following is the text, and Acts chapter 17 is what the text looks like when the Apostle Paul preaches it. In both instances, Paul is speaking about what Francis Schaeffer used to call the man without the Bible. He is explaining to Christians in Rome the situation, the condition of men and women who do not have the Bible. And here in Acts chapter 17, he is addressing now men and women who did not have the Bible. Sometimes Paul has been criticized for what he did here. Too philosophical, people say. Not enough Bible. There is no reference to Scripture here. He doesn't say to the Athenians, as you know, Moses says in Exodus chapter 2. He doesn't say, you remember how David wrote in the Psalms. And so, some Christians have been very ultra-critical of the Apostle Paul. We need to have less of this reasoning and more of Scripture. But the fact of the matter is, whenever Paul spoke, he reasoned. And Luke has given us little indications of that. Acts chapter 17 Verse 2, he goes into the synagogue, and what does he do? He reasons. But because these are people who know and accept the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures, he reasons scriptural truth from the text of Scripture. When he is in Athens, Luke tells us he reasons 
both with the Jews and with the Gentiles. In the synagogue, he reasons out of the text of Scripture with which they're familiar. When he speaks to the Athenians, the Athenians who don't know or accept the authority of Scripture, he reasons out of the truth of Scripture without appealing to Scripture as his authority. Uh, I checked in my little uh, Greek New Testament, and my little Greek New Testament has footnote references to allusions in the Old Testament Scriptures in this little presumably summary of Paul's speech, and finds at least 15 of them. In other words, he is speaking to people who are not committed to the authority of Scripture, but he is teaching them, preaching to them, explaining the Christian faith on the grounds of what Scripture actually teaches. And far from not preaching the gospel, he's here before the Areopagus precisely because he was preaching the gospel and they didn't understand it. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they understood so little, they thought he was probably speaking about two different new gods. It's very evident by the end of the sermon that he is pointing them to Jesus Christ. So here he is, very interestingly, taking the teaching that he gives in Romans 1.18 following, and he is using that teaching, that doctrine, that theology in order to address people who have no knowledge of Scripture and certainly no appreciation of Scripture's authority. Some of them are Epicureans. They are people who believe that because there is no transcendent meaning to life, the only thing you can do is to find whatever pleasure you can. He's speaking to Stoics who are kind of pantheists and believe in a world soul, and we're all part of the world soul, and Therefore, like people who believe in the world soul today, new age people, the great thing to do is to live in harmony with nature and to try to get in touch with your inner self. And there are four things I want you to notice Paul says here, four axioms, four, four teachings that he sees are true of men and women without the Bible. Uh, one might say, uh, whenever you meet a non-Christian, there are four things you need to know about them that they either don't know about themselves or are denying about themselves. And it may be both. Either they don't know this about themselves or knowing it deep down, as we might say, as we all understand it's possible to do, we know something to be true deep down but we repress it, we suppress it, we, we try to deny it. Um, how many of you men in the congregation today have not gone to the doctor, although the symptoms have been there, and when you've been asked, shouldn't you go to the… No, there's nothing really… It doesn't really hurt, and you've, you've repressed it and suppressed it. 
Well, what are these four things? Because they're so important to Paul. Obviously, they're in Romans 1.18 following. They're here in Acts chapter 17. And they're important also for us that we may have confidence in the Word of God, confidence in our Christian witness in a, in a world that doesn't believe in Scripture. And the first of these four points, we might call them axiomatic statements. The first of them is this, that we are all surrounded by the revelation of God. We are all surrounded by the revelation of God. Look at what Paul says here about the fact that God has brought everything into being, that God is not confined in space, that God has governed the whole of providence. As our morning friend John Calvin used to say, this universe is a theater of God's glory. Everywhere you look, according to Scripture, God's glory, God's power, God's majesty is on display. The heavens, says the psalmist, are proclaiming, declaring, preaching to us, wordlessly preaching to us the glory of God. As Paul says in Romans 1, as we've noticed, God's eternal power and divine nature are, listen to His words, they are clearly seen, they are clearly visible in the things that have been made. There is clarity about God's revelation. And we live in a theater where, where the play of God's revelation is constantly before our eyes. And of course, many people say to us, but, but I don't see it. And this, of course, is Paul's point. Why do you not see it? Your response, he is saying to these very religious people, but not trusting in the God of Scripture, you say it's not so clear. Otherwise, you would not have all this confused idolatry and this, this unknown God for whom you have created an altar. The problem is not that the revelation lacks clarity. The problem is that sinful men and women do not see it. And of course, because we all imagine that what we see is exactly what's there, we deceive ourselves and deny this truth. Think about, maybe it's no longer true, but I remember in older days visiting people in old folks' homes, and there was one constant complaint. What was it? It was the food. And sometimes the food was fine. The problem was not the food. The problem was in the taste buds. But these dear ones were absolutely persuaded the problem was outside when they were carrying around the problem. A very humorous illustration of this in a church in the States. Years and years ago, I was standing at the door after the morning services, standing beside the minister who was here. I was here. We're shaking hands, shaking hands. This elderly lady comes up and says in far too loud a voice, that, she says, is the finest sermon that's been preached in this church in the last 18 years. And I'm kind of you know, <laughs> trying to guard whoever the minister was from this dreadful statement. 
And then when he takes me home for lunch, he says, do you remember that elderly lady that spoke to you? Well, I remembered. I knew what he was talking about. Oh, and there were a few elderly ladies. No, no, he said, the one who said to you, that was the finest sermon preached in this church last 18 years. He said, you know, she's been stone deaf ever since I came here. <laughs> and it's so easy for men and women to deceive themselves, to say, have you not heard this? If God had made it clear to me that He exists, and it never crosses their minds that the blindness is actually within I kind of gave myself away to the children this morning, or at least to their parents, didn't I? I mean, how many of you have 18 golf caps? And that's only some of them. <laughs> I had an epiphany during the week. I was sitting, minding my own business, and my eyes, they focused on the coffee table in the room. And for the first time in my life, I saw something I'd never seen before. There were books here, and there were books there, there were books there, there were books there, books there, there were papers there, there were books there, books here. For the first time in my life, I thought, what do I see? Up until that moment, I would have said, I see books. But a light went on, and I thought, now I see. What I see is a mess. A mess. And I, I'd, never, I'd never seen that before. <laughs> Dorothy said to me, I'll, I'll cope with this when I go home. She said, you know, just the thought of going into your study gives me apoplexy. <laughs> but I don't see it that way. Now, you see, my friends, if that's true of of ordinary things in life, that I don't really see a mess. And two or three of you sympathize with me, but some of you see the mess, and your instinct is to tidy it up and to say, don't you see the mess? And the answer is, no, I don't see the mess. I see the books. Now, what if that's true of the revelation that God has given to us? And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. We are all surrounded every single hour of the day, whether it's light or whether it's dark. We are surrounded by the manifold ways in which God has revealed Himself, and He has revealed Himself with such clarity that we should seek after Him, that we should pursue Him, but we don't. Then there's a second axiom. It is that we are not only surrounded by God's revelation, but we are all invaded by the revelation of God, inescapably invaded by the revelation of God. And Paul makes contact with the fact that the Athenians, in a sense, themselves can't escape this because even their own poets point in this direction. And he has these two quotations. In God we live and move and have our being, and we are indeed his offspring. Now, what's he saying here? What's going on in Paul's mind? Why is he able to latch on to this and to say to them, don't you see what your poets are saying to you? Well, of course, this goes back, as Romans 1.18 goes back, to the fact that we're made as the image of God. 
And however much we may have distorted it by our sin, we remain the image of God. And so long as we are the image of God, our our very being in that sense, however distortedly, reflects the fact that we are created by Him, that we are created for Him, and that we cannot do without Him. And the thing about this revelation is not just that it's outside of us, that it's sending wordless messages to us, but it's, it's inside of us, and we can never escape it. We are, we are stuck with it. And Paul says, even your own poets recognize this. And this is exactly the kind of teaching that, for example, the book of Ecclesiastes gives us. God has placed this burden on us. He has set eternity in our hearts. As C.S. Lewis writes on one occasion, when people say they don't believe in anything transcendent or that they are for one who is transcendent, they say, well, why is it that you never really feel at home in this universe? Why is it that there is always something missing? And Paul's answer is, well, it's in, it's in the very first chapter of the Bible. We are made as the image of God, and therefore our lives are created in order to reflect the image of God. And we can, in that sense, we can never escape our destiny. Those of you who are from Glasgow, who have come from the blessed city, you know what they say about people from Glasgow? You can take the boy out of Glasgow, but you can never take Glasgow out of the boy. And you see, it's the same here. You can never escape being the image of God. And therefore, you have to develop all kinds of coping mechanisms to repress that. And so you see the great new atheists of our time, when they are asked certain questions, they will always dodge the question. Because some of those questions ask about this longing for the transcendent, this sense that this world is not all there is, that living without God is not what I was created for. It's uh, the very thing that Augustine speaks about, isn't it, in the opening paragraphs of his confessions. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It's very interesting what Paul says in Romans 1, 19. He says, God has made this plain, and in our translations usually it's, he's made this plain to them because he has revealed it to them. And really, it's a repetition. But in the first instance, he uses a preposition that usually means in. He has made it plain to them because he's made his revelation plain in them. Some of you know the name of the southern uh, United States writer Flannery O'Connor and our very famous description of the southern states as the Christ-haunted South. I think we can take that expression and apply it more generally. God-haunted men and women. 
because the revelation that surrounds us also invades us. And that's why, that's why you find very learned and famous people finding themselves saying, for example, at the end of a nature program, isn't mother nature wonderful? And if you buy the expensive book, mother has a capital and nature has a capital. And for all that they have repressed and suppressed the revelation of God, they can never keep it down because to speak of mother nature is to appeal to the transcendent, to something beyond, to some grand designer, because it's built into us, into our very being that we're made as the image of God. So we're surrounded by the revelation of God. We're invaded by the revelation of God. But then thirdly, tragically, we are in ignorance of Him despite the revelation of God. Look at what he says here, the times in verse 30, the times of your ignorance God overlooked. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. And he's not insulting them by saying this. He's saying that's what, that's what that altar means. And there were lots of these altars to the unknown God to the unknown God. I don't know him. That's what those altars were saying. I don't know him. And so he's not insulting them. He's not saying, I'm so superior to you, you bunch of ignoramuses. He is saying, you have, this comes out of your own lips. This comes from me reading the words on that altar. And the reason you're in ignorance, and this is the point he's been building up to, is because you've turned away, and you need to turn back, which is what repent means. You've turned away from the revelation God has surrounded you with and the revelation that God has invaded you with, and although you are not able to escape that revelation, what you're doing is try to turn away. You go home and read through Romans 1.18 following, and notice the strength of the verbs that Paul uses about unbelieving men and women. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They exchange the truth of God for the lie. It always requires coping mechanisms to deny His reality. And it leads, he says, to a chosen ignorance God has revealed Himself, but we don't see Him or trust Him or love Him or know Him, not because the revelation is unclear, but because we are in flight. And so we build all these, all these coping mechanisms that can never consistently work. Those of you in my generation remember having to memorize Bishop Blougram's apology? Nod if you had to memorize Bishop Blue. Robert Browning's great poem about the, the, the um, reporter Gigadibs who goes up to Bishop Blougram's palace and, and they have this debate and uh, uh, Gigadibs, the reporter, is on at him very negatively. And then uh, Browning says to him, 
Ah, yes, but you can't protect yourself from your atheistic doubts, can you? You can't protect yourself in a world in which God has planted, as it were, excuse the expression, time bombs that will explode and reveal the truth that you've been all these years repressing. And he says, it may come in moments when you never think, just when we are safest. There's a sunset touch, a fancy from a flower bell, someone's death, a chorus ending from Euripides. Maybe that's stretching the point a wee bit. And that's enough for 50 hopes and fears as old and new as nature's self to rap and knock and enter in our soul. You see what he's saying? Lewis says this again so beautifully. He says, the tragedy of the unbeliever is he sees a sunset and every instinct in him wants to praise and adore and give thanks. But his theology his rejection of the truth of Scripture? Well, he's nobody to thank. He's nobody to praise. And he therefore has no explanation for the thankfulness and praise and awe and wonder that arises within him. And so, he's got to close down the idea. Perhaps the revelation is clear enough after all. And then Paul's fourth point, and I simply mention it because Acts simply mentions it, and then the Apostle Paul is hurried off the scene. He says, we are surrounded by the revelation of God. We are invaded by the revelation of God. We are in ignorance despite the revelation of God. And one day we will all be judged by the revelation of God. God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world by the man he has raised from the dead. And it's very interesting that Luke says, when they heard about the resurrection, they started mocking him. And that was true. But I wonder if what lay behind the mocking of the resurrection was actually that he had mentioned the judgment, that he'd got inside their hearts, that he'd got under their skin. And he was telling them what they knew. As Paul says at the end of Romans 1, isn't it interesting? He says, as people rush into lives of immorality, they have to do something. They have to get others to join them in order to justify themselves because they know that those who do such things deserve the judgment of God. And they didn't want to listen any longer. It's true, isn't it? As soon as you mention the word judgment, people don't want to listen any longer. Just as when we hear bad news, we don't say, give me more of this bad news. We really don't want to hear it. We don't want to listen any longer. Now, why does he say this? Because it's only once we're admitting that there is bad news, that we are under judgment, that Jesus and His resurrection makes any sense whatsoever, that He died for our sins and was raised again, as Paul, we'll see, goes on to say in Romans 4, raised again for our justification. 
It's really a little hint. If they'd only listened longer, it's a little hint that if they embraced the bad news of their culpable rejection of God, there was good news for them, that He'd sent His Son to be their Savior, that He had died for their culpable rejection of God and their lifestyles and ignorance of God, and that He was willing to welcome them home. You see, my friends, Paul understood this. People then, because Athens was full of religious shrines, as now, will always say, but there are many ways to God, many ways to God. And you know, if you said that to the Apostle Paul, he might say, you know, there is a truth in what you say, but what matters is not that there are many ways to God because all of us will meet with Him. What really matters is what will happen when you get there. Every one of us is on the way to God in that sense. It's what happens when you get there. Whether you have come along the way of Jesus Christ that leads to seeing Him as forgiving Father, or whether you've come along one of your many personally constructed ways. They said it was easier to find a God than a man in Athens. They admitted it themselves. It's easier to find a God than a man in Athens, a world in which we make ourselves our own God. The same is true. And Paul is saying there is one way. There's a way back to God. He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. Remember learning that if you've been in Sunday school and church most of your life? He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He came to save the world. So when we call him Savior, we call him by his name. Was he a failure? Well, apparently some men joined him and believed. And among them was Dionysius the Areopagite, one of their own, and others. Well, would you be one of them? Are you one of them? Or are you still denying what deep down you know? Our Heavenly Father, Thank you for this, we imagine just a summary of an extraordinary discourse. We can hardly imagine what it would be like for this man who was brought up in a, a Greek culture and educated in a Jewish culture and had become a Christian to stand before uh, these people who regarded themselves as the great intellectuals of the time and to speak the gospel. We thank you that you used that sermon. You used his witness. And we pray that you would do the same with ours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish this morning by singing together, Let Your Light Shine in the Dark.